The word dramaturgy is unusual enough that my phone's autocorrect function changes it to dramaturgy. Even for theater makers, the concept is nebulous enough to prompt articles about it in major newspapers with headlines like, What the Bleep is a Dramaturg? In my dramaturgy classroom, I aim to demystify dramaturgy as an art form by recognizing that, as scholars and theater makers, we all already commit acts of dramaturgy regularly and enthusiastically. In my books, dramaturgy is an act of creation and more of a mindset than a set of rules, regulations, and duties. I'm Professor Molly Seremet, and it's such a thrill to welcome you back for season two of Writ in the Margins, a podcast that harnesses dramaturgical thinking as a performative act of creation. This podcast was conceptualized, researched, written, produced, and realized by the graduate students in the Shakespeare and Performance Program at Mary Baldwin University. For season two, we are bringing you 13 episodes that unpack, investigate, reimagine, and sometimes even push against five wildly different plays. El Muerto Dissimulado, or Presumed Dead, by Angela de Azevedo. The Antipodes, by Richard Broom. The Island Princess, by John Fletcher. Loa to the Divine Narcissus, by Sor Juana Inez de la Cruz. And Life is a Dream, by Pedro Calderón de la Barca. These plays sit alongside Shakespeare in the universe of early modern drama, but each has its own unique terrain and orbit. And each episode offers a close look at key features of the landscape from a dramaturgical perspective. In their research, students have deployed tools of structural analysis, contextual synthesis, and creative intervention, and have intermingled their research with performed scenes, original music, and special features galore. Feel free to listen to the episodes in this season in any order. I hope you'll also go back and revisit season one as well. Do visit our website for show notes, transcripts, and bibliographic materials. We appreciate the support of Mary Baldwin University's Shakespeare and Performance Program in this endeavor. Now that's enough for me. On to your episode of Writ in the Margins. Spurgeon. And I'm Madison Matfield Mayberry. Welcome to this episode of Writ in the Margins. Today we are going to take you back in time to 1683 and the first performance of Los Empeños de Una Casa, also known as House of Desires. Please forgive us if we mispronounce any of these Spanish names and places. We've done our best to properly pronounce them, but we may have some hiccups. This Spanish Golden Age play was written by Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz, a Hieronymite nun who was born in and lived her entire life in Mexico, or New Spain, as it was known in her time. She's one of the only female playwrights of the time in New Spain who was actually known and popular while living. 44 years, 5 months, 5 days, and 5 hours. For this duration, the life of this rare woman illuminated her era, born to this world for prodigious feats, as the pride of nature. Thus said Father Diego Quieja in his dedication of Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz's final volume of works following her death. This response is the earliest known biography of Sor Juana, and it creates a contemporary's rather glorified account of the woman who defied the accepted idea of womanhood and became one of Spain and Mexico's most revered poets. It's interesting. So we 
don't really seem to know much about her, do we? Given her mythological standing today, we know very little about her life that can be confirmed. Much of what we know is anecdotal, and a lot of what we talk about today are probabilities not confirmed, but based on what little we know. Yeah, it seems like so much of our work around this play has involved more drawing out Sor Juana from this text in order to know her better, as opposed to just opening a biography about her. What salient facts do we know for sure? Sor Juana was a Criollo woman, meaning that she was of Spanish descent, but her ancestors were more than likely also of Jewish or Moorish descent. Most scholars agree she was an illegitimate child, which limited her prospects in marriage, but not in education. However, her contemporary, Father Diego Calleja, said of her parents from their legitimate union was born our peerless poetess, among other children, though her soul may not seem to admit human parentage. That's interesting he uses the term legitimate when most scholars say she was illegitimate. Mm -hmm. I wonder if this was Father Calleja's way of revering her posthumously, or if he was maybe trying to rewrite the narrative a little bit? Yeah, it is unclear whether Father Calleja truly believed she was legitimate or was trying to protect her reputation as she was verbally attacked throughout her life. However, many of her relatives were considered to be illegitimate, and Mm. this only truly seemed to hurt her in terms of marriage prospects. Hmm, yeah. The idea of illegitimacy in Spain and New Spain at the time was probably different from, say, the English early modern view. Scholar Grace Coolidge talks about legitimation in early modern Italy as a social and legal paradox that was carefully managed, a definition that highlights its twofold importance in inheritance strategies, And this paradox existed in Spain, too. Historian Thomas Kuhn's definition demonstrates the ways in which people in both Renaissance Italy and Spain were able to control the social and legal aspects of their environment. He says, quote, Illegitimacy and legitimation were a means for people to craft an ambiguity that could be used to advantage. Creative manufacture, maintenance, and management of such ambiguities was one of the hallmarks of life in a Renaissance city-state, if not all societies, unquote. So clearly being illegitimate really didn't seem to stop Sor Juana from achieving what she really wanted to do. She was a woman ahead of her time. She considered the dream to be, quote, the only one written solely from her own volition, end quote. Mm. According to Octavia Paz, Sir Juana's text made clear that she did not believe that being a woman was a natural barrier. Her obstacles originated in customs, not her femaleness. Wow, that is profound. And yes, so ahead of her time. So you've talked about her being born in New Spain. Can you give us a quick idea of what that area covered in the late 1600s? Yeah, New Spain uh, covered Mexico, other Central American countries, Florida, and other um, parts of the southern USA. Um, However, Sor Juana resided in Mexico City. Hmm. It's interesting how big New Spain was compared to some of the other colonies. It's kind of easy to forget the several countries that colonized North and South America. With that historical context in mind, let's take a deeper look at the play itself and its first performance. Before jumping into the first production, we want to chat just quickly about the title of the play. 
When you're dealing with a play originally written in another language, translation becomes a barrier and often promotes some ideas that perhaps are different than originally intended. The title begs for clarity of translation. Los Empeños de Una Casa has several options for translation, while House of Desires is listed as the title in the Royal Shakespeare Company's production. Los Empeños de Una Casa can translate as Pawns of a House, Trials of a Noble House, or House of Trials. This obviously conjures different interpretations than House of Desires might. I actually find myself being more drawn away from House of Desires and towards some of these other options. In fact, when you look up empeños for translation, there are six different options and none of them are desires. What does the title seem to say about the play itself, do you think? Is there something in it? While translation may be muddy, this play clearly is meant as a cloak and dagger comedy, something to provide joy and entertainment for the festivities. One thing for certain is that the house is important. It encompasses almost the entire play and all of the characters. It basically is a character itself. Interestingly, the text of the play and its accompanying songs and loas form one of the few existing 17th century theatrical fates in Spanish, and the only one by a female playwright. These fates followed the Spanish court fate model, which consisted of a play with a loa, or prologue as we've said, interludes, and a fin de fiesta, or a final dance. Mm. Uh, Not completely unlike early modern English plays, though perhaps a little more elaborate. What kind of celebrations would Sor Juana have written for, and why was she popular in her time? Well, Sor Juana maintained a close relationship with the wife of the Viceroy of New Spain, the Countess de Paredes. They were near in age, they both loved theater and intellectual matters, So they were naturally drawn to one another. It's likely due to their friendship, actually, that Sor Juana's works gained popularity in Spain, as the Viceroy, once back there, probably promoted her theatrical works. The Countess's husband also commissioned Sor Juana to design a triumphal arch for the cathedral in Mexico City. Her success from this prompted other requests for her to compose poetry and theatrical pieces for viceregal celebrations. Among these celebrations was the birth of the Viceroy and Viceroy's son in 1683, which is a strong contender as the original production. That's so interesting. You don't really think about a play being written for the birth of a baby at weddings or coronations, maybe. Yeah. I mean, while no documentation actually exists for this first performance, this is the most likely celebration that Los Empeños de Una Casa was composed for. As Susana Hernando Araico states, in Spain, the nine editions of her texts published between 1689 and 1725 provided accessibility for them for performance, though no information is thus far available for any Spanish production of Sor Juana's Mm. theater prior to the 20th century. So we don't actually have any evidence of the specific celebration that the play was written for. No, no. But... Garcia Valdez believes pretty firmly that Los Empeños de Una Casa was written for the celebration of the birth of José María de la Cerda y Gonzaga Manrique de Lara, the son of her close friend, the Countess and the Viceroy of New Spain. So October 4th, 1683 is the date given, 
and it would have been a massive day of celebration for all involved. Given her close relationship to the vice reign, Sor Juana writing a play for the birth of her son isn't too far-fetched an idea. Where do you think it might have been staged? Its setting being mainly in one house speaks to the idea that this first performance may very well have been staged specifically in the residence of the Viceroy in Mexico City. The descriptions of the house within the play could very well speak to that particular house and its design. Wow, that's an interesting thought. When you don't have documentation for the performance, the text of the play kind of becomes your only guide to that performance. Mm. Does anything about the style tell us more about this first performance? Well, the play follows much of the popular style of Pedro Calderón de la Barca, whose work from the Spanish Golden Age is brilliant. He's kind of the Spanish Shakespeare. (laughs) Also in the style of the time, the play opened with Eloa, as we've said, a dramatic prologue that praises or lauds, hence Loa, the spectators. The Loa portrayed the characters of joy, diligence, chance, fortune, merit, and music. And within the Loa, Merit references the household hosting the festival, Mm. which would have been the house of the Viceroy. To quote the prologue, let us invoke joy, since the joy that comes unto this house today is more divine than human. A deity, she will tell us on her own authority, which of us deserves the credit. Mm, Lovely. (laughs) This Loa provides the context of the first performance, even if we have no records of the performance itself. Sor Juana wrote many Loas throughout her life. Her Loa to the Divine Narcissus is often included in dramatic anthologies. Each of the subsequent songs also provide valuable insight into Spanish court life at the time. References to the Viceroy and ties to Mexico are all throughout the play. What about the many cultures and nationalities present in New Spain at the time? Does the play talk about them at all? Definitely. While the Viceroy did represent the Spanish monarchy, his wife was a direct descendant of a prestigious Spanish family, as well as the Italian Gonzagas in Mantua. You also have characters like Castaño representing indigenous people, and even Don Carlos is referred to as a foreigner in the play. Does she criticize Spanish colonialism with it? I think so, yes. Sor Juana makes explicit reference to the four biggest nations present in Mexico City at the time. Besides Native Indians, Black people were also noticeably present. Some scholars say that Sor Juana makes a specific reference to and critique of the Spanish caste system within the play. Hmm. This multinational presence is especially revealed in the final song. The play ends with a magnificent dance of the four nations in which Spaniards, Italians, Mexicans, and Black citizens all dance and sing together to conclude the festivities. This dance was originally performed only by the nobility at special celebrations, but later would also be performed by professionals in street festivities. Who do you think did it for this first performance? It's likely that within the context of the first performance, this final dance was performed by the nobility. It's fascinating to think about this play being performed for the nobility when you consider the class boundaries that are crossed in the play. Yeah, can you elaborate on that a bit? Because I do think it's good to point out the things that Sor Juana highlights in her play in terms of class. 
Absolutely. So Sir Juana included characters in House of Desire that reflected the different people groups of New Spain. In her character Castaño, we have not only the audience's main comic relief, but also the only character indigenous to Mexico. He is arguably one of the cleverest characters and mm -hmm. remains level-headed when many of the other characters do not. Mm -hmm. He also receives the honor of closing the play with a final audience address, which would have been at the time the Viceroy and his wife. Yeah. Castaño certainly gets some of the best bits in the play. <laughs> and it's fascinating that he closes the play when traditionally, at least in most early modern English plays, a noble character or a religious character usually had the last word. Definitely. It must have been quite revolutionary to have a person of lower class and of color closing the show. She also includes uh, three incredibly commanding women mm. in the play, Doña Ana, Doña Leonor, and Celia. Yeah, yeah. And, and some scholars have pointed out that Leonor is an image not only of Sor Juana herself, but of the vice reign as well, which really seems to portray their close friendship. What about the women in this play makes them unusual? They are each educated in their own way and in the end actually have a lot of control over their own fates. They each get to decide who they want to marry. In fact, the only lover that does not get married, Don Pedro, is the one that was trying to force a marriage on someone who did not want it. It is really interesting to see how many bold statements she made in this play and it must have worked because it appears that Sor Juana enjoyed the patronage of the new Viceroy and his wife for many years. Yeah. Speaking of their patronage, we have a very specific instance within the play to share that shows this. Yes, within the intervals of the play were always songs or other loas performed. One of them is a song written specifically for the son of the Viceroy and Vicerine. Its lyrics speak of youth, innocence, and new life. Sir Juana calls him Little Cupid, son of Mars and Venus. She calls him by his name, Josef, uh, showing how specifically this song was meant for him. The lyrics would originally have been set to the tune of Tierno Adorado Adonis. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, this tune appears to be lost, but we've put the lyrics to similar Spanish Baroque music of the time. Sans de Murcia's Suite Number 1, part of movement to Tarantellas. We want to take a quick moment just to thank the Classical and Baroque Music Library, specifically Radovan Stojanovic Jr., for permission to use their rendition of this song. Please enjoy just a few lines of Tierno Adorado Adonis.
This song really shows the deep connection Sor Juana had with the Viceroy's family and her high esteem of them. For our listeners, if you're interested, the full translation of the song is in our show notes so you can look more closely at the context. Yes, clearly some very beautiful work to come out of the Spanish Golden Age. I am really surprised it isn't studied more often, especially when we have such a strong female playwright like Sor Juana. Mm. She was so popular in her time, it's sad she kind of disappeared from the canon in favor of male playwrights. Hopefully this podcast has inspired you to investigate her work further. Yes, Sor Juana. (laughs) Sor Juana really shows her strength of poetry and character within this play, and she does not shy away from touching on all social aspects of New Spain at the time. Maddie and I both highly recommend reading not only this play, but other of her work as well. Her insight into her time is fascinating. We hope you've enjoyed this tidbit of exploration on Los Empeños de Una Casa and the amazing Sor Juana. For further information, please check out our show notes as we have some great resources there. Thanks for joining us today on this episode from Writ in the Margins. Adios! Thanks so much for listening to Written the Margins. On behalf of my awesome students, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. All opinions shared on this podcast belong to episode hosts and their special guests, and do not necessarily reflect the positions of our places of work and study. Please check out our show website for more resources, including show notes and transcripts. Now don't be a drama turkey. Listen to another episode.